Welcome to Let's Talk About Life, a weekly podcast brought to you by LifeBank, the organ, eye, and tissue recovery agency in Northeast Ohio. Donation can be a complicated subject, but it is really all about life. So spend a few minutes as we unravel the complexities of donation. So come on, let's talk about life. Michael Lynn was born into a musical family and naturally moved into becoming a professional musician. He taught at various colleges and eventually landed at the renowned Oberlin Music Conservatory. Michael became a leading expert in the flute and recorder, specializing in Baroque era music. He was doing very well for himself. He was immensely proud of his two daughters and also became a dean of the Oberlin Music Conservatory. One of the highlights of his career was that he had the distinguished honor to play at the inaugural luncheons for both President Barack Obama and President Donald Trump. Life seemed great until he noticed that his stomach started to look a little strange. He made an appointment and went to see his doctor. Once he saw his doctor, Michael received shocking news that he was in end-stage liver failure. Hi, you're listening to episode 85 of Let's Talk About Life. I'm your host, Colleen Gerber, kidney recipient and LifeBank staff member. Although he had very few symptoms, his world was about to come to a screeching halt as the disease progressed. We're so honored to have Michael here with us to share his journey and talk about how it affected his life and career. Michael, let's start at the very beginning. When did you first begin teaching at Oberlin Conservatory? And what was it about the flute that drew you in? Well, I had an upbringing that is familiar probably to a lot of professional musicians and that both of my parents were musicians. So my father was a musicologist and a keyboard player and my mother was a music teacher and a flutist. And so from the time I was a little kid, I played the flute and I played the keyboard and I did all of those those same things. So it was kind of natural for me to go on and go into music. I lived in Bloomington, Indiana when I was in high school as my father was getting a PhD in musicology. And I was at the university high school, which meant it was very easy for me to study at the university while I was still in high school. And so I had a quite a strong background already by the time I, I really started in my college years, starting off really on the recorder, but then moving more and more onto the Baroque flute and also other Renaissance wind instruments that I played. And as soon as I got out of college, I was considering going to graduate school, but I immediately got a couple of very good jobs. One was being a principal recorder player for a Baroque orchestra in Ann Arbor. And so I pretty much immediately started doing a little bit of teaching at University of Michigan. And after uh, a year or so of that, I got the job at Oberlin. So that was 1977. So I, I started teaching there. I taught only 
three one-hour students a week, and so I would commute back and forth from Ann Arbor to Oberlin. And gradually, I got more and more teaching there, and eventually, uh, after about 10 years of commuting, <laughs> I, I moved down there. And I figured out once that just in commuting from Ann Arbor to Oberlin, I'd driven around the earth two and a half times. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a lot of driving. That, Luckily, I sort of like driving. So so anyway, I, I started teaching at Oberlin in 77, and and eventually I was basically full-time, and then I was appointed associate dean of the conservatory, uh, which I did for 15 years. That actually ended as I became very sick with liver disease and then got my transplant. Following my transplant, I, I did go back to work, and I'm actually still teaching there, although I'm officially retired. When were you diagnosed with liver disease, and how did that happen? How did you get to the point where you were told you needed a liver transplant? I, I believe it was 2004. I had noticed kind of on my belly that there were some places where it looked like there were some veins that kind of wanted to poke through the surface of my skin. And I had no idea what it was. I thought it was kind of weird. And I decided to ask my doctor about it, my, my GP. And she looked at it. And she said, oh, you, you might have some a sort of a fatty tumor thing going on. We need to, uh, you know, do a CT scan and see what's going on. And Following that, she said, well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you've got liver disease. You've got cirrhosis of the liver, basically. And it, as soon as I had an appointment then, finally, with the Cleveland Clinic, they said, yes, it's end-stage liver disease. And I was fairly shocked because I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with me. And to find out that I had an you know, end-stage version of uh, the disease was was quite a shocking thing, but I really didn't have any symptoms. Symptoms that really that I noticed. The doctors, of course, could see lots of things going on. So I started treatment, especially for esophageal varices and things like that, doing banding and endoscopies um, on a regular basis. I never had any bleeding, but they were very worried about that because of the portal hypertension, which was causing what I could see on my belly. And, and really for, for quite a long time, I, I would say around four years, I didn't really have symptoms that I could notice. So you were working through this? Yes, the whole time. And I mean, I had no reason to not work. I, was, I felt completely fine. And the strange thing was that my MELD scores, which is, of course, what helps to determine whether you can get a transplant or not, whether, you know, you fit the requirements uh, medically, my MELD scores were always too good. And what happened eventually was that I, I developed encephalopathy to a fairly bad degree. And, and my MELD scores were still not bad enough. And so they, they put me on the, the list or whatever they called it, which is where they're looking for organs that are sort of outside of the, the normal. Yeah, yeah. So and, an organ popped up and, uh, and they asked me if I wanted it. And I said yes and went on from there. But about two years before 
I got my transplant, I basically had to quit working. I had to, to quit performing maybe a year or so before that. I just I just got so that I, I couldn't do it. It was mostly the encephalopathy giving, you know, problems it causes in, in one's brain, which affects coordination and concentration and, and all kinds of things. So I, much to my chagrin, I had to quit playing um, professionally. And then uh, eventually it became clear that I needed to quit doing my uh, dean job as well mm. because I seemed fairly sick and I was verbally impaired to some extent. Unfortunately, liver yeah. disease is really rough and yeah. you, you do end up getting very, very ill. And just for yeah. the sake of our listening audience, your MELD scores also determine when you are listed on the national waiting list for an organ. So those right. scores are very important. Yeah. And it, it really does determine your future. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. When I was first diagnosed back in 2004, you know, the doctors already said, you're going to have to have a transplant at some point or you're going to die from this. And so I, I went through the testing associated with the transplant um, all the way back in 2004, and I was put on the list, but I just wasn't progressing on the list because my MELD score was, was too good. At the same time, I was very sick, and the doctors were worried that I was going to kill myself in an accident or something. They just were, were not feeling good about me running around in the shape that I was in. Understandably, you know. Yeah, understandably. absolutely. Can you share with us what it felt like to get the call that there was a donor liver? It was quite amazing, obviously. I mean, I, I literally had been on the list for eight years, and I had been being told that it was going to be hard to get me a liver because of my MELD score. But I did know that they had put me on this list where uh, an unknown organ could be used. So I had a little bit of hope that it was going to work out. So, Michael, I, I want to stop you right there for a second and explain to our listeners that every transplant center has medical criteria for the optimal organ for transplant. And because there is such a need and huge waiting list, they will allow potential recipients like yourself to agree to receive organs that may be a little bit outside of those medical criteria in terms of age or something else. Obviously, it's still a good organ, but it's just outside that medical criteria. And it's important to know that each transplant center has their own medical criteria for each organ. So you are very lucky that you did receive one. So that's wonderful. No, I, I didn't know that the liver was in some, some ways not working correctly. And mm. they had to go back in and reconnect something. And I should mention another important part of the story kind of leading up to this is that my daughter, who was then, I think, 21, decided she wanted to be an organ donor for me. and A living donor. A living donor, yes. And I was not very keen on that idea because I thought it seemed dangerous. But she was 100% convinced that 
she should be allowed to do that and that, you know, that it's her choice. And so she went through the testing to see if she could be a living donor. And it was kind of a funny combination of them saying, yes, you're in perfect health, but no, we don't want you to be the donor. And I think that the fact that they really didn't want to, didn't want to put her through that uh, 21-year-old with her world ahead of her. Yeah. We had been sort of frustrated over that. And one afternoon I was taking a nap. I was lying on, on my bed. And the phone rang, and I got the phone, and they said, this is the Cleveland Clinic calling, and we have a possible liver for you. And if I wanted to be considered for that organ, I needed to be at the Cleveland Clinic in an hour and a half. And I live an hour away, so that was a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> and I, I literally had to find a, a ride to uh, to get there and and got checked in. And then they fairly quickly, they made positive noises about the liver pretty much right away, um, mm-hmm. thinking that it probably was going to be good. And, and eventually they said, okay, we're going to pack you up and take you to the operating room. <laughs> and that, that was that. But it was, you know, just that moment uh, receiving that call was, was pretty immense. Because I had sort of dreamed about that. I think this is probably something that, that people waiting for transplant spend a lot of time thinking about how this is all going to go down, if it goes down at all, and you know what is the surgery going to be like, what's the recovery going to be like. And it's all in your imagination because you don't really have any way to know. And sort of at that, that moment when you get the phone call, all of a sudden it's all, all real. You're right. It is. It's all of a sudden. And then there's kind of a panic mode, like, uh oh, <laughs> yeah, what's happening? Yeah, definitely. So, Michael, do you know anything about your donor? I know nothing about the donor. I think it was on my fifth year anniversary. I and both of my daughters wrote letters, which we sent to Life Bank for Life Bank to then get to my donor family. And, you know, we expressed an interest in, in knowing who they were, but, you know, mainly we're thanking them, obviously, for what had transpired. And we never heard back. Mm-hmm. So so I don't I yeah. don't know anything. I've never heard back from my, my family either. So uh-huh. and, and truthfully feel that's okay. They did what they needed to do at that time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I just want them to know how grateful. Yeah, yeah, that, that was our feeling too. Michael, your story is just so amazing and it gives such hope to those on the waiting list, but it is also very inspirational. So much so that it touched one of your colleagues, Robert Walters, who is also a professor at Oberlin Music Conservatory and a member of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. So heads up, next week, Michael and I will be back along with Robert and his 11-year-old daughter, Saya, to talk about how Michael's story made them take action in regards to organ, eye, and tissue donation. It's something you won't want to miss. Michael, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward very much to continuing our conversation. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. We hope you found today's episode inspiring and informative. 
Let's Talk About Life can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers. And of course, always on lifebank.org slash resources. We encourage you to subscribe and we invite you back next week. And come on, let's talk about life. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk About Life. If you have questions about today's podcast, reach out to us at info at lifebank.org. Take a few minutes to do something heroic and register to be an organ donor by saying yes at lifebank.org. Literally, someone's life is dependent on it.